Hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And this is the third time that I have recorded this introduction because I keep being completely incapable of staying, um, sounding like a rational human being who people would want to listen to. I'm Liv. I'm the host. And normally I'm completely hinged. Uh, but right now everything in my life is bad and everything in the world is so much worse. So we're just all having a time. But thankfully, thankfully, at the third time recording this, I'm going to keep that um, horror to a minimum. Today I am here with the first episode in Women's History Month episodes, which, I mean, with the state of things... What's the point? But they do give me a theme. They give me something to work off of. I I talk about women in this podcast in every single episode. It's the entire point. But see, in Women's History Month, I can focus on certain women. I can have a theme, something to work towards. I've already got incredible episodes planned, dreamed up. This month is going to be fun, I hope. That's provided I can function as a human being. I've got high hopes. But today, thankfully, we have an incredible conversation that I recorded months ago when I was a functioning adult who didn't feel like uh, she was going to cry at every <laughs> every moment. I spoke with the absolutely wonderful, wonderful Ioana Papadopoulou. She has written. I just I don't even know how to get into this because I'm just so excited. Ioana has written a novel about Demeter, but like the Demeter that I didn't know I needed an angry, angry Demeter. I think the Demeter we all need right now, um, the feminine rage Demeter. And we had just the most fun talking about Demeter as a character, about Ioana's novel, Winter Harvest. It, I mean, Demeter is fucking wonderful. And if you didn't already gather from her name, Ioana is Greek. She's from Thessaloniki. And so we also just talked about... Greece, Greek culture, writing Greek mythology as a Greek. It's important that we also have Greek voices in this realm. It's incredibly important. The more retellings, the better, but the more retellings by Greek people, even better. Because it's their culture. And while we've all been able to kind of like take it and use it like it's ours, it isn't. It's theirs. And so I'm just, I'm utterly thrilled to have Iwana on the show. And I really hope I'm not um, butchering your name, but my Greek is only coming along a tiny bit. We had so much fun. We have so much fun. We're keeping in touch. We're just going to like chat and be pals now, which is truly a joy. Demeter is so interesting. This book is so fascinating. I fucking love an angry woman. And that is what we have here. And also just like a conversation about an angry Demeter because Demeter of all people deserves to be angry. Conversations, the feminism of female rage, Demeter's winter harvest, with Ioana Papadopoulou. I'm so excited to talk about Demeter. I'm so excited to talk about your book. 
I just kind of want to hear every single thing, but mostly I'm excited. You are now going to be the second person of like fully Greek descent um, who I've talked to on the show about their novels about Greek mythology. And I love that that's happening more and more. So, I mean, okay, clearly I just want to talk about everything. Um, But why, why Demeter? What were you wanting to do with your book? Tell me whatever you want to know and we'll go from there. (laughs) All right. Perfect. Um, So, uh, the story starts when I was a little girl and I was first introduced to uh, Greek mythology all the way back in uh, the early 2000s uh, in Thessaloniki in uh, northern Greece where I got my first books about Greek mythology. I started like learning and really liking this part of my culture. And I loved the story of Demeter there because I thought she was so badass. I thought she was so cool because she was the only one that uh, was really strong and really independent from all the goddesses of the Dodecathion. And uh, she was uh, this person that had managed to force her will on uh, Zeus and kind of won and I always in my head and my personal canon of Greek mythology she was like the cool goddess of the earth the the, the third really important like in my head it wasn't Hades it was Hera as like that third really powerful deity and as I was growing up and learning English and seeing how Greek mythology was viewed in um the Western world and in English speaking uh, books, uh, it was always such a huge uh, sad point in my stories that Demeter was mostly depicted as a grieving mother, that she lost that coolness and that strength and that idea of that independence that I loved as a little girl and I continue to love. So as I was uh, reading more Greek mythology and I started also having certain personal uh, issues with the Greek mythology retellings that were being created because I felt that they were missing certain things about Greece and about Greece as a place rather than the characters, I thought that I'm going to try to write my own. And I thought if there's going to be one unseen Greek mythology story that I will attempt to write, it can't be anything but Demeter. Uh, yeah, I love that so much. Demeter Demeter is absolutely fascinating. And I do think that she is so often like set aside, like you're saying, as this grieving mother or just as this like any old part of the Olympians. Like she doesn't she doesn't stand like sort of above them in most of the, you know, the ways that that certainly yeah, like you're saying, the English speaking world takes in Greek mythology. And I think I mean, that's so in large part because like for the last couple few, you know, maybe a thousand or just hundred, but all of it years, you know, these stories have been um, retold to us by men who just see her as that because, you know, we have the Homeric hymn to Demeter. That's her main surviving source. You know, it's like the one thing that survives in great detail. Exactly. And so, yeah, that's all they go with. But I'm with you. Yeah. Like she's utterly fascinating. She's an earth goddess. She is inherently Un, like without a doubt one of the most powerful goddesses yeah and what i really found interesting especially from my research is how much people speculate when they study mythology as a science because uh, that exists you can study mythology outside of the specific place um 
what mm. that uh, they think that is probably a reimagining and a remnant of an even older fertility uh, deity, and that's why she has a lot of these archetypes mm-hmm. that don't match with the rest of the gods. And uh, the other thing that I found really interesting, and obviously it's kind of a, a different uh, tradition, but I also thought it was really interesting as a connection, is that I don't know if you're aware of the Orphic uh, tradition of mythology. <laughs> yes, question mark. No, so I am. Um, but it's become kind of like a running joke on the show that I try to avoid talking about it too much okay, because so it is I shouldn't so talk. confusing. That's fine. I won't talk about it then. <laughs> no, no, you can feel free. No, I, no, no. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Demeter in the Orphic tradition for sure. Because in the, the Orphic tradition, some of the references to her are that Rhea becomes Demeter when the world is remade because um, Zeus... Uh, swallows the world and remakes it and i thought that again was a really interesting connection to the idea of demeter something far older than perhaps mm-hmm. uh, the rest of the world so although i didn't do anything with the orphic tradition we don't need to refer to it ever again in this uh, uh, podcast <laughs> uh, i thought it was a really interesting side note that even in that other so different uh, tradition uh, this idea of oldness inside Demeter uh, was there. Yeah, I mean, it, it. I mean, it's not any kind of coincidence that there are all of these layers of like Mother Earth fertility mm-hmm. goddesses, right? Like, there really aren't any other gods that have that same like sort of repetitive nature down the generations. You know, we have Gaia, and then we have Rhea, and then we have Demeter, and like. that's so indicative of this like greater more ancient power like so many of the gods like you know they're based in these older concepts very often particularly I think the goddesses like from that time when you know we think that goddesses might have been more worshipped than the men and then they get these remnants passed down and then the remnants become you know what we know of as Demeter but she would have started as something so much bigger Yes, and uh, definitely the literature that has remained for us is also a problem for Demeter as well, because as you said, the vast majority of works that she might have starred in have not been recorded, if there were. I don't even know if there were. So Mm -hmm. I got, uh, for my own research, uh, I got most of uh, my sources actually from scholarly kind of works, from geographers like Pafsanias, from um, hmm. people like uh, Pseudo Apollodorus. Um, so there were like bits and bobs here and there that you collected and you got a little bit more of an idea, but none of them on their own are really enough of a material for you to kind of learn to love Demeter from the original material. It makes me think of how Hestia is often handled too, like in this way where she's almost like too important for literature to have survived or, or rather that like, like the way I see Hestia and I feel like you, you know, you might agree it's kind of similar to Demeter is that like, she was so important on a day to day level. Like the ancient Greek people were so invested in her 
in their like daily lives that it just kind of meant there was no need to put her into these, you know, dramatic stories of, of, you know, hurting mortals or doing weird things. Like it's almost like she was above that because she was so important to an actual human living their life. No, that's absolutely the case. I mean, uh, even in modern Greek, the word estia is still part of our way Mm. of describing the home and of describing hospitality, even. So it definitely feels that the more important you were, actually, that's a really interesting concept, and I've never considered that. The more you're part of everyday life, the less you are a fictional thing. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. I think it like it, it's both frustrating because we want to read more, but when you see it that way, it's really empowering and interesting and kind of beautiful, you know? And also now makes me think, because uh, Hestia is actually quite an important character in my book. I am, I think, uh, quite different Ooh. in that. She does play a role, uh, but I kind of have tried to give her a role in between the myths because I don't actually have myths to use for her. Um, yeah. so I kind of tried to make her have a role in between those myths uh, but uh, I'm now thinking can I go rewrite my book and use that idea more <laughs> can we just uh, delay the? because <laughs> that's so interesting now I, I'm now thinking do I need to write a Hestia novel now <laughs> please oh my god could you imagine I would love that so much please write a Hestia novel <laughs> don't know what I would write but at least a novelette I know at the very least (laughs) it's one of those things it's like I I think that's what makes certain characters Demeter and Hestia among them like so interesting as uh, as characters for retellings because there is so little to work off of that it is both frustrating because you don't have as much to go on as and as much to be inspired by but it also means that these characters are like completely open-ended you can make them whatever you want them to be whatever you like believe them to be yes i mean um (laughs) i wrote winter harvest trying to be really close to the myths like i tried to not allow myself too much uh space beyond them i tried to focus on being creative in the space of connecting the myths rather than in the myths themselves um because uh, i felt that because demeter doesn't really have any other representation let's start by being as true as possible and then hopefully that will inspire someone after me to to write a more free <laughs> interpretation of her myths but i tried to piece together these myths but on the few times and actually there were only really two works of literature that uh, I I had I tried for those two to be really close so I have uh, the Homeric hymn to Demeter which is the more popular one but there is also a hymn to Demeter by Kalimachus mm-hmm. and I also was quite uh, strict myself Although it's not as detailed as the Homeric hymn. So for these two parts of the story, I tried to be quite um, strict with myself to not really deviate too much. But then because so many of the other myths that I used, I only really had a small description of them from geographers or from scholars. 
I then was really free to do whatever I wanted. So I tried on the small parts that there actually was something uh, that lasted through the centuries and I could use as a basic material to stay true to that. I feel that same way whenever I'm talking about the myth. So I love that so much. Like, like I, particularly on the show, like I don't deviate at all. Like if, if we don't know that I'm just going to say that. And I love that. Like I I want to be talking about, you know, exactly how the ancient Greeks saw them. Like as far as we can tell now, um, like people often ask me like, Oh, what do you think this character would think about that? And I like never have an answer because I don't like to think about it in that way. Like I want, to think about it more of like like culturally like w- what they believed versus seeing these these people as like kind of you know like these fictional characters that that like I can interpret what they would have thought like no I want to work off like just the ancient sources even if even if they give us nothing like Hestia's or whatever you know where we have like literally nothing about her I think that uh, there is value in both I just felt that for that hmm. book it wasn't the place to deviate um in other kind of works I've done, I would possibly deviate because there would be more uh, freedom or there would be more materials or there's more variation, so there's more to work with. But uh, I'm already kind of afraid that if all you know of Demeter is the grieving mother, then when you read my Demeter, you're going to have a bit of a shock and I want to be able to defend myself by being very true to the sources. Um, because uh, I did not write the book so much trying to think of uh, the historical side, so I don't. I've not tried to mimic a specific period of ancient Greece. I've just more created a wider world of how I was taught ancient Greece, but mixed in with issues of contemporary Greece, but still like set in a mm. pseudo historical element of the past. But what was really interesting in this book is that. A lot of the issues that um, I discussed and a lot of the perspectives that I used uh, to tell Demeter's story, I think could have transferred to early 20th century, even part of my family and other uh, Greek family dynamics of uh, the late 20th century, early 21st century of Greece and especially the remnants of the older generation. And I would find that a lot of these stories. Uh, can still hold and can be retold in a very contemporary Greek setting. So hmm, I love that. I I kind of didn't try to say that this is me telling you a historical story. I'm telling you a mythological story. And within that, I've created an idea of the past and a world where it's quite timeless and it's quite shapeless, but so very Greek that uh, the place is kind of the most important thing not so much the time if that makes sense mm-hmm. and I think that's why some people obviously yeah and picked up the anachronisms but I kind of think but if you are a deity how much time matters and these myths are timeless and because they're timeless they're anachronistic oh yeah I mean even just like the sources that we have you know I think something that people don't think of it so much if they don't you know live in this world is the the amount of time that even the sources that we have spanned right like Mm -hmm. you can't really talk anachronisms when when the start to finish 
years of just the ancient sources are like at least a thousand years worth of time you know like yeah what what is an anachronism when when the stories of of these gods and characters have spanned a full thousand years absolutely and people also forget that this wasn't a really central religion in the way that we now think of religions so different cults different variations all kind of merged together and that's why you do have for so many characters so many different variations of myths even if you don't go to something as far as the orphics you still have different birth genesis different things different places and you just kind of need to love that because if you can't love this uh, confusion then all you're really trying to do is what makes me the most angry which is that you're trying to pick your favorite and force it upon others. It's okay to pick it, but you can't ignore the fact that someone else can pick something else. And if I can go on a slight tangent as a Greek person, I think that this probably is uh, one of my greatest uh, annoyances with a lot of the retellings, which I read and I love and I give my money to. Like I don't want anyone to go and say I don't like Madeline Miller or anyone like that. I've enjoyed those books and I'm really glad they've been written. I'm really glad I read them. But at the same time, they've created an idea of Greece that is not quite Greece. I think what they've done, and it always slightly um, disjoints me from the stories because I'm so close to them and I know them so well, is that people forget that these places are real. Like when you grow up, you learn these stories as part of the cosmos and the genesis of your own home town or your home country. They are not this faraway thing that it might be for someone living in Canada who doesn't think of themselves as part of this place. So I always feel that they miss that. And because they miss that, they miss and ignore elements of Greek mythology and Greek history even that don't really fit the West. And I think that's partly something that created a very long time ago. And obviously, contemporary Greece is very influenced by an Eastern culture because it has changed and it has evolved and it has continued. But uh, even the ancient Greek myths are having elements that you can see are there in contemporary Greek society as pathogenesis of problems. And uh, you just need to to obviously either accept them and see ancient Greek mythology as not this lovely fictional uh, world, or you need to accept that there's another side to it or another version of it. Because all really mythology is as fan fiction upon fan fiction upon fan fiction, world by world, culture by culture, age by age, somebody has given their slight take on what these set of characters do. And it's great. I love it. I love the feeling of comfort being able to read these characters again and again and again. But uh, I do feel that people forget that they're real places and they have real their names are there and people use those names and feel those names and there's sides of greek mythology that don't fit the west and that's okay you don't need to like them but you can't ignore their presence either i'm done yeah 
No, I, I, I think that's so important. Um, I want to, I want to hear and say so many things based on, on everything you just said. Um, like obviously, you know, I'm very much coming from this Canadian standpoint. Uh, but I do fortunately live in the sources in a way that, that, you know, obviously this is not to say that I understand the, the cultural aspects, but what you were saying earlier about, you know, what was the phrase you used? It really like spoke to me just like loving the confusion, I guess, um, you know, of all the different variations and, and sources and, and all the contradictions. And that is something that is my absolute favorite part of this job is loving the contradictions. I want to bask in the eight different versions of somebody's story. And I want to uh, like try to just piece apart why each one is the way it is, because I think that that is the most interesting part of mythology. So I'm just with you completely. From that cultural perspective, I would love to know, you know, if, if you have examples that come to your mind of of the ways that, you know, your experience as a Greek person growing up in Thessaloniki, um, you know, how this how you feel that that the the culture really, you know, either either differs from the retellings if you want to be that specific or if just like you want to talk about it from that cultural perspective and, you know, kind of how you live in the sources in in that really unique way. Um, so obviously a lot of these myths and these uh, Catherine stories uh, are more from southern Greece so in northern Greece it was slightly different but um, I think um, I'm, I'm trying to find something specific to say because I don't want to go into something really generic is that we use ancient Greek concepts names stories in our everyday speeches like nearly jokes as expressions um and one of the things that um it always comes to mind and I had never thought of it as much until this person pointed it out to me is that every language is an expression of thought a unique expression of thought and that's why you can never have fully uh, synonyms between two different languages and Greek is a really hmm. rich language, and all these gods and these um, uh, words from the ancient past are expressions of thought that have stayed in Greece. So in our everyday speech and in our everyday life, they are there uh, because you would just call a Mammothian uh, attempt to do something as an Heraclea attempt. Because Heracles, that's how he would have fought. Or mm -hmm. um, uh, you would have um, uh, expressions of how this person is um, like Zeus because of their bad behavior, especially now that we're moving into a more uh, gender equality attempt and trying to look at sexual assault in a different way. And 
people also forget that these plays of ancient Greek are performed on a yearly basis in Greece. And a lot of times, a lot of these plays are retellings themselves. I have not um, experienced retellings only through these very small forms. I have had the privilege, and I'm really lucky that I have been able to do that, uh, that I can see the same play performed by different actors nearly every year and many times performed in different settings, even if the story remains the same. And at the same time, when I walk down the street, even in a place like the Saloniki, I am constantly having little clues here and there of this past, of the Gorgon of Thermaikos, and uh, of how we were taught and discussed uh, the ecological problems of uh, the port of the Saloniki with the Gorgon. The stories of like even Greek TV where the Gorgon of the Saloniki, actual Thessaloniki, the princess, like who was a historical person, was there and was complaining about the pollution of the Aegean Sea. Uh, so it is kind of jokey. It's not always serious, but it's part of everyday life, even for people that don't necessarily know the details. And I think that's more the difference that you might not know that this is why you call it or this is why you say it, but that's where it comes from. And all that really has happened mm-hmm. to someone like me is that maybe I'm just a bit more aware of it. And again, I want to reiterate mm-hmm. more than anything Please write the stories. Please read the myths. Tell me your most extraordinary takes on Greek mythology. Just don't tell me this is it. That's more my thing. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, I, that's like, that's, <laughs> you've basically just like summarized my podcast with that phrase, or like at least how it's been for the past couple of years. Like, like there's no finite anything. There is no, there is no canon. There is no right or wrong answer to a question about Greek mythology, you know, I mean, except when there is, but they're rare, <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, I absolutely love that. And, and like, so I've, you know, been trying to learn Greek and from just like, say the, I, I want to say it's more than a handful of words. Cause I definitely, you know, I know, <laughs> I know a like decent number of words. I just can't form a lot of sentences yet. Um, but the biggest thrill for me in learning Greek, just as this enormous nerd for Greek mythology who has read an absurd amount, um, is learning a word and then immediately understanding its mythological context and then like getting this real visceral thrill of being like, oh my God, I understand, you know, how this word came to be in modern Greek, you know, like one of my favorite examples is, and I tell, I tell my friends this and like, they're not usually into Greek mythology and they just kind of like, they're like, okay, Liv, like, sure. But I, I like every time, you know, I've been over there with somebody, I've been like, okay, so, you know, I explain like, you know, the, the, the niceties, Kalimera, Kalispera, Kalinikta, like just, you know, saying good, good morning, good day, good evening to people. And okay, I'm like, okay, so Kalispera, you know, it has this connection to Hesperides because they are, you know, the goddesses of, of like the evening and the West. And, and then of course, you know, Kalinikta, oh, we've got that, that's Nyx. She's the goddess of night, like, and all these different kind of connections. And so just from that perspective, learning those connections via the language has been such a, just like a nerdy thrill for this like dweeby little Canadian. Um, but I can completely see what you, what you mean just in that tiny way that I, that I understand. 
and I, I I love hearing more about you know how how it actually like impacts you you know growing up there I'm trying not to just like be like oh my god I just love Greek culture so much <laughs> um but I like I do <laughs> I really do so Canada has like no culture we're just like a colonial mess so I think yeah. I just like latched on I'm like That's please give me something still. with culture <laughs> Oh, it is. It's just not a great one. Um, you know, not that Greek mythology is, is all roses and daisies, yeah. but <laughs> I think, uh, like in every kind of culture and every kind of history, you need to celebrate the joys and try to fix the tears. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I'm utterly fascinated hearing about. I mean, all of this in this way. I'm like just give me more of literally everything. Um, but uh, you know, I also want to make sure that we're talking enough about like your book. I want people to want to read it not least because like, I'm just so fucking thrilled that Demeter gets a book, like, you know, to, to give my listeners like a slight backstory to how, you know, you and I are talking, but I saw somebody tweet about your book and I was like, Oh my God, like Demeter gets her own story. Like I lost my mind. I was just so excited that not only that this book, you know, exists, but I wanted to hear all of your thoughts about her. So, I mean, you've talked about it a little bit, but do you want to talk more about like what you wanted to do with Demeter, like on a, on a story level, like what you wanted to, to sort of emphasize about her because she is this goddess who is sort of like deeply underrepresented in in certainly like you're saying like english-speaking western you know uh, retellings and and all of that oh yes i mean thank you for letting me uh i can tell you what uh, i wanted to say what i was too afraid to say I think there were myths about Demeter oh, yeah. <laughs> that I definitely am like putting it as an entrance, as an entry myself that I want to talk about. The myth I was too scared to add. Um, but a kind of beginning on the story is that, first of all, I'd like to say to everyone listening that please don't read, uh, or please read the book, please buy the book, but please don't expect the book to be... <laughs> the story of Demeter being this wonderful representation of a female heroine. My Demeter is not a hero. And I did not write her as a hero. I actually specifically followed, as much as the myths would allow, a corruption arc and created the story of how mm. she became a villain. Uh, so you are not going to find in my Demeter a person that changes the world for the better. This is a character that, I love that has within her understanding of the world feelings about injustice, seeing injustice in other situations, but is still so ingrained in this power dynamic of patriarchy that she's expressing in herself. She only reacts and actually opposes it when these power dynamics directly influence her. She's not going to be your champion of women or your champion of the downtrodden. She cares about herself and about her life. And actually, the more she gets to fight for herself, the more she accepts that she's a person of power and should be treated the same as the men, rather than the men are not kind, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, she only kind of sees it as yeah. that there's this hierarchy of the world and I'm going to be on top. How much on top can I be? And she's maybe a little bit more sympathetic than other characters because she's also been a victim. So she's also kind of experienced how unfair it is. And she would maybe, if she lived in a world 
right as she wanted not be like that as much. Like, and that's where Hestia comes a lot into play, how she would have really liked the Dodecathlon to be led by Hestia as they were inside the stomach. Mm. But then she sees this brother who has the different upbringing from them as this corrupting influence that took away whatever family they had created inside the stomach. And they became just forces that fought instead of joined together. So the book really discusses Mm. uh, issues of family. And it isn't, if you condense it very much, it's a family drama. It is, at its (laughs) core, how people fight for who is going to be the leader of the family now the father is dead. And two people fighting for the custody of a child. At its core, as that. Uh, but obviously, it is packaged with a lot more things, so it it doesn't only read as that. Uh, but definitely, parenthood and family dynamics are really important. Definitely, female role in patriarchy is also really important because patriarchy wouldn't exist without feminine people, not feminine people, women of any uh, size and form. Uh, that uh, are supporting the patriarchy because they don't want to lose the little bit of power they have through it. Um, so you suddenly see uh, a deity that can fight for the weaker, understands their plight, and doesn't care. I love this. You're making me so happy. <laughs> and at the same time, you have this mother, and that's what like was why I, when I found that myth, I was like, yes, somebody needs to write this. I'm gonna do it because nobody else seems interested to do it. That is willing to end the world for her child, like is willing to go to this levels of destruction, and at the same time abandons two other children. Hmm. I just am trying not to just be like so happy about this description. No, so it's just basically a Demeter that is full of contradictions. That, uh, but it's also very much. I think if you try to read it, trying to say how is he gonna be the hero that's gonna save us, you're not gonna find it. Could she have been? Mm-hmm. Maybe if she had a different influence as she became an adult. But at this point and in this trajectory of mythology she is a goddess that and i like to say that she's demeter the sito the one who feeds and yet she starved the world hmm. i just okay i i love all of this it 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 just feels so demeter absolutely like the the demeter that i think of um but also i think that the way you're talking about this is such a great it's just such a great example of, I mean, not an example, but like, I mean, you know, all, all of these retellings that have been coming out and, you know, I, I agree with you, like the more the merrier, like, I'm so glad there are so many. I'm so glad that most of them feature women. I think that that's so important. And I love, you know, all the different ways that we can see them because they are, you know, there are countless ways that you can, you know, view the, the, Greek mythology broadly. But at the same time, there is also this habit that, that, publishers have like I won't blame the authors it's typically publishers this habit to call everything that features a woman feminist and and I I think that that is detrimental to to the idea of feminism this idea of of equality like feminism is not you know some 
ideal, perfect world where nothing is wrong. Feminism is simply the notion that women can be equal and should be equal to men. And so to me, it sounds like like your book is almost that in its most sort of like like purest form where, you know, Demeter is not a a heroine, like you're saying, but she is equal to the men. And and like it's a great example of how, you know, a woman trying to be as equal to the men in that kind of context can be like just as corrupting. And I think that's so fascinating to look at it that way. And it just feels it feels honest in a way that I think a lot of times, you know, these are written to be happy stories and that's fine. But personally, I when I read Greek mythology, I see very few happy stories. And I like the idea that there is this darkness um, and that there is like, you know, that Zeus is such a corrupt and broken leader that if someone is trying to rival him, they almost have to become just as corrupt and broken as he is. And, and that, you know, that's, that's equality in its own very specific way. And it's a very Greek, uh, I want to say, I think, element that we always find something negative in everything. We're quite <laughs> pessimistic, I think. Or we are too optimistic. We're too extremes. Um, but uh, I think that that's exactly it. I consider this a feminist book, but not in the sense that it's feminist because it allows this female cruelty. And I think there needs to be space mm. for female wrath, female rage, female cruelty. And I think that's yeah, why that's it's equality. feminist. Like, <laughs> because it does allow a space yeah. for that to be explored. It doesn't mean it's going to be liked. Like, There's loads of great stories in literature uh, that you're not meant to like the character, but you still want to hear their story. So that's what I wanted to do. And as I said, there are there is one specific thing that I did not dare to include it because I thought that I can't... First of all, I don't think I can do it justice. But secondly, I don't know if an audience could take it. Obviously, within the story, um, Demeter is also raped. That has happened. There is a myth in Pafsanias where uh, this is how she has her second child and third child, the the twins, um, uh, Vespina, whose name we don't know, like the mistress, and uh, Arion, the, the the horse. But uh, once mm-hmm. uh, Persephone um, is like settled and that coming back every year, that side of the story is done. There's another myth, which is about Iasion, who is, I think, if I remember correctly, a prince, and how in Corinth, Demeter is so intrigued by his outside appearance that she enchants him to go and sleep with her. And I thought, well, this is basically a goddess raping a man. And mm-hmm. I thought, but I don't know if... Uh, I don't think, that's why I didn't do it, and I didn't, I didn't think I could do it justice, first of all. I don't think that uh, I would be able to convince an audience that has already seen Demeter do really horrible things. Uh, to also see her at the very end uh, rape. And I thought, I'm not going to include it, but if I ever dared to write a sequel to that book, which I have no plans to, that would be the story I would write. How she becomes this person that has this long-term relationship from all terms and accounts with this person, but has stolen their life. 
in a way that I think mm. when um, male gods rape women, they tend to be married, they tend to have a life beyond it. But if you are the lover of a male prince, would you as a goddess allow them to also be married? It seems that in that idea of gender hierarchy, which is totally unfair, like don't think that I agree with it, but it's okay <laughs> for you as the god to take someone's wife, but also let them have her. And But as a female mm-hmm. goddess, it seems that you couldn't possibly have a man that is also someone else's man. Does that make yeah. sense? And and then I thought that does. really takes away even more from your life. And it's obviously inequality even between the gods, because um, there is one specific goddess that said that, I can't remember now the source or anything, but I think it's the goddess of the dawn uh, who had a lover. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, she she does that too. Uh, and she had this uh, human lover and and one of the myths, I think she says, male gods are really scared of female goddesses having human lovers. And uh, that's, I, yeah, yeah. I, I want to find that source now. <laughs> sorry. I'm going to try to find it. I can't remember it. I'm really sorry. It just came to me right now. And about how, because they're so scared, when a female deity has a human male lover, it is a much bigger uh, element of danger than when a male god has a human lover that is female or male. It doesn't matter because in that sense of gender equality and gender power dynamics, there comes the god who is higher, but then the man who should be higher than woman. That confusion between which side, which element is more important to create the proper family dynamic and hierarchy of relationship is so confusing that they just can't have it. A woman should only be married mm-hmm. and should only be sleeping with a man that is of equal or higher standard. Going to someone below her and her having that power because of her class or her power in the case of gods is so disruptive, just as a concept. And obviously that's the case even if you look at mm-hmm. history at a later point, because a man could marry a poorer woman and elevate her. A woman can't. And I actually, if uh, mm-hmm. you know me anything is that I'm also an art historian and I actually have a specific artist's life where that's exactly what happened. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, what happens like, in my head. This is uh, how I live. Mm-hmm. No, I I find that utterly fascinating and it's really like it's opened up a lot of of thoughts from in my head about about the way that this does work because I think you're so right, but I also think there's like another level happening. Which is that, like, so like you're saying, you know, women can be the lovers of gods and their husbands. There's no issue there. You know, like, it's never, you know, it's never going to be a problem. But I also think that this, it really speaks to the few instances we have of when gods, male gods, try or succeed in having male human lovers. because. Even those cases, like, you know, I think it's just like it, it further emphasizes the gender because we have a number of instances of that. Almost all of them result in the human 
the mortal dying during the attempt at becoming a lover of a god or you know the the one example i can think of where you know the mortal doesn't die is ganymede mm-hmm. with zeus and his life is is all is still irreparably changed he doesn't get to return home or behave like a mortal or marry he has to live as zeus's cupbearer on olympus and so like even even in those cases where a male human mortal is involved they there still has this dynamic like you're saying where where like it is still totally different from the way women are treated and i think that like it's it's obviously tragic in the case of the men um you know dying is is equally shit but it does say so much about the gender dynamics because the women are just this like sort of sort of toy to be used by the gods and and then like but the husbands still get to keep them because they're equally like their husband's toy in this world whereas when the gods do you know want to take a male lover like that can't even happen they can't become a toy because they're a man so something else has to happen and that usually is death but it's still like a very interesting you know look at the way that these gender dynamics do work And you're, and you're right about the few women who take mortal, um, the few goddesses, I should say, who who take mortal lovers, like like uh, Demeter and Iazion and Eos, the dawn, and um, I'm going to forget who it was, uh, Tythonus, I think. It, those cases are also tragic, but also like they're typically assault, but they they also result in, I don't know the story of Iazion actually, like in terms of the end result, but like for Eos... You know, she she abducts Tythonus and and takes him as a lover. But then she like, I think it's this one. Um, there's a few different stories that kind of resemble it. But I think this is the one where she like asks for him to be immortal so that she could live with him forever. But she like forgets or Zeus tricks her or whatever. But she he doesn't get agelessness. So he just like lives to be old forever and just like sort of falling apart in age but like doesn't die. And so it also like, you know, the women can't still can't even have what they want. Um, you know, even obviously it's it's non-consensual and that's it's horrific, but it still has this dynamic of like a goddess can't can't get, you know, even a mortal lover in the way that a god can. Yeah, no, I think and it's incredibly interesting as well as to the fact that this happens and um it's tragic as well. And I think the reason why going back to Demeter is that She's also quite a unique example, I think, of an unwed goddess that never weds, never has in any kind of myth yeah. I've read a marriage. She's an unwed mother. She's a mother of many fathers, which is very much a male thing, I think. She's a very masculine, maybe not masculine is not the right word. There is definitely a male element in her character that I don't think any other goddess has because all the other goddesses that don't have husbands that I can think of uh, are uh, usually in the Dodecathon at least. Maybe the Titans are a little bit different, but 
in the Dodecathion you have um, all of them are uh, virgins, so their way to be mm-hmm. um, unwed is to not have that pleasure in life. It's like the censorship of human female pleasure. But Demeter is like, I'll have that, I'll have this, and you can do anything about it. And it does again yeah. point to that no, oldness. Uh, because I think there is some proverbial myths or uh, sources that say that both Hades and uh, Poseidon wanted to marry her. Like, uh, yeah. And then one of them, uh, in one myth, rapes her, the other takes her daughter. So there's a lot to unpick there. Um, but I, I find that incredibly interesting because even in contemporary standards in uh, Greece, for example, I would say that an unwed mother would still receive some um, uh, comments from certain people. Like It would not be necessarily looked down on, but it would be something that uh, would be discussed especially in more Mm -hmm. rural places especially in smaller communities or by older relatives Um, and definitely if you went back to even when my mom gave birth to me which is 30 years ago I think it would not be easy to be an unwed mother the system and the community and the society and yet you see that this goddess, that because of all these situations, has a more, I would say, a different kind of independence than other goddesses, is um, still not top dog, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of, of what I love about Aphrodite, who you know, is very much married, but she still lives in that very similar role because while she's married to Hephaestus, she does not have children by him. She has children by other men. Um, And so, and I've always loved the strength that comes with her character in that, like, you know, even when Zeus tried to make her less powerful by having her marry Hephaestus, she just still was like, nah, like I am, you know, I am a very powerful goddess. I'm going to continue to do what I want. And what I want is Ares, you know, among others. Um, And I I love that about her, but it, you know, what you're saying about the, the ancientness of Demeter also applies to Aphrodite. And so I think that that connection is really interesting because yeah, like Aphrodite is, of course, based in like these Eastern goddesses of like similar values. And it so it remains the same where these two goddesses, you know, have this kind of under the surface power that that the gods and, you know, the patriarchal nature of the stories as they exist now has tried to like, you know, break them down, turn them into something less powerful than they actually are. But you can kind of piece out these strands that still exist that show, you know, the more ancient power that, that still kind of exists within them, despite all the attempts at, at sort of taking them down. Oh, definitely. And obviously, um, like with Demeter, uh, Aphrodite's power is not so much when she does it as when she doesn't do it. Like with a lot of these yeah. male gods, her pow- their powers are that, I will rise a wave. I will throw a thunderbolt. But with these goddesses, their power is when they stop, 
when they give up. That's mm-hmm. the danger of those. And it's obviously something I slightly touched upon. I didn't really explore in the book, but that what they really wanted, or they wanted, or they, I don't know what they wanted. In my book, they wanted, uh, was to give these more abstract powers to uh, the female goddesses and then create nearly a bastardization of that element. Like the woman that, um, the goddess of matrimony is a cheated woman as the protector of women, Hera, punishes women more than anyone else and is so jealous and is so unfair to them. And there you see that there's powerlessness in the fact that FC is gone, actually nothing might happen. But with Hestia, with with Aphrodite, with Demeter, their power comes actually in the threat of their absence. And obviously, I I can't think of a myth where... Aphrodite actually exercises that power, but that's what Demeter does. Demeter uh, refuses her power to the world. And it's Mm -hmm. catastrophic. And it obviously shows that uh, as an allegory of feminine uh, role within society and within uh, the world, that sometimes they might be doing women in the world generally, might be doing things that we take for granted, but actually without them, there's a really important uh, lack. And that's not actually only for women. It's like for a lot of jobs that people and a lot of roles that people play within society, we don't think about them. We don't consider them as something like worth noting. But the moment they're gone, there's a huge societal collapse. And... In Thessaloniki, that actually happened, I always like to refer to it, is when the bean collectors went on strike for six months. Wow, six months. Yeah, uh, I think it was that long. I was a child when it happened, but I remember as a memory the impact of that. And that's why I always think these are Mm -hmm. really vital, supportive roles that they are nearly, if they're done well, they are negligent. But when they're not done, they're gaping holes. Yes, absolutely. Oh my God, I love this conversation so much. But Aphrodite, so there is, like in the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, there is mention of like the threat of her. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's the one where she, uh, Zeus kind of gets her to want to have sex Mm -hmm. with Anchises. And because he's like mad that her power over love and sex always has the gods going after mortal women, but like she's never gone after a mortal and he gets kind of like worked up about it. But equally, like the reason why he has her marry Hephaestus is that he recognizes that her power is such that she has to be tamped down in some way Mm -hmm. because if she has this free reign, like she can make them do anything through love and and lust and so i think that while we don't have the same example of a story where demeter fully withholds it like a lot of our stories around aphrodite contain the threat of either withholding it or putting it on in a way that the gods don't want and so i think yeah like that's really that's such an interesting way of seeing it this 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 type of power that they have that is is like totally hidden until it's not and then you're in real trouble and obviously, like with uh, Demeter, if Aphrodite completely withheld her power, the threat is extinction. It's not solvable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, both of them hold, like, 
like the absolute like epitome of of control over the world in that way. Yeah, so it's uh, there's some really cool goddesses out there for people to consider, yeah. and yeah. Uh, I think that uh, uh, it's a shame for me that a Western narrative has not told you of that, has not, uh, yeah, kind of. Like, I think especially for Demeter, going back to that, although Aphrodite is such a great example. Now I want... Now, can I write an Aphrodite novel as well? I love this conversation. I'm working on that too, so don't worry. (laughs) Okay, excellent. I'm looking forward to that. Um, uh, But um, uh, what was I saying? I forgot. Uh, But yes, with Demeter, because the myth of uh, Hades and Persephone is so... Uh, popular the last few years it is such a shame that that myth which had drastic horrible consequences uh, for the um, world above is never really discussed like it's a traumatic thing that happened to the world it's kind of like if you look at this now it's a ecological disaster and how, like, mm-hmm. and which I think is also not um, coincidence because I don't know if you're aware of the Greek Dark Ages, mm-hmm. where there seems to have been this kind like of like ancient? abrupt stop of civilization and it kind of needed to restart. It does for me feel mm-hmm. like a memory of when something so bad happened that kind of everything needed to stop and then start again. Yeah. I I wonder if that's something where like because I know the the like the dark ages have been sort of reevaluated um and like typically called like the early iron ages now because they have some remnants of things but yes like very little written word. You yeah. know, there was that kind of like real big blip mm-hmm. um in in ancient Greek history and I kind of wonder, you know, specifically when it comes to the story of Demeter being this kind of like restart. Like all it makes me think of is the eruption of Thera. Mm-hmm. And and how like, you know, it, if you are talking about this sort of like remembered history very far in the past where you don't you don't have an exact memory of it. But like, you know, what what else looks like a, a, a horrific famine, but specifically tied to the fertility of the earth than a volcanic eruption so big that it would have changed the face of the Mediterranean. Right. Like, it, you know, if, if anything's going to cause a complete disrupt mm-hmm. in in growing plants and food it's going to be like that level of eruption and so yeah like it feels feels like this like sort of cultural memory of of that time like then put into her story and i know i'm also just tying that cuz i fucking love volcano stories <laughs> but still like it you know it feels it feels like reminiscent no absolutely and i think again because demeter is such an old goddess there's something really old it kind of all ties together so so basically and and a synopsis i wrote this story because as a little girl i thought demeter should have been the most important one of the most important greek gods and the world didn't obey my liking so i decided to write her story to make her <laughs> a bigger badass and i thought the world gave her justice for I- it 
I love that so much. That's the perfect reason to tell her story. That's just so wonderful. Uh, I just thought it was um, yeah. one of those things that uh, it was the story I always think I wanted to write. It's very different from other things I write because yeah. I don't write mythology actually a lot. I write more second world fantasies, a lot of reimaginings and stuff mm. like that. But uh, this is potentially my only but we'll see. Uh, actual myth retelling. I mean, Demeter deserves it, though. Like, she really does. So I'm so glad that you've given her, you know, this book, even if it's your only retelling. <laughs> well, you never know. I mean, there's always elements of myths. It's just I've yeah. never tried to tell someone's story i've kind of always just thought i'll take here this here that we'll just use a bit of that a bit of this we'll just do whatever we want but this time i thought no i need to look at this as a more concrete thing and try not to deviate because if i wanted to deviate then uh, it would it would really be fan fiction yeah (laughs) Really, I mean, there's so many levels of fan fiction in Greek mythology and then yes, retellings. Yeah. No, but uh, it would have been like um, quite a different thing. But I did add elements of it. Like, I did add certain scenes that were more for my personal interest, as in that, yes, this happened. Somebody needed to pay. And obviously, Demeter does have those myths because he has the Eri. I can never pronounce that even in Greek. It's very hard. Erichthyson. Oh, Erisichthon. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. The one who eats himself. Yes. And I yeah. thought, there you go. Somebody pink. Yes. Oh, I. Yeah. That's my favorite or one of my favorite stories. Yes. Oh, yeah, so I thought I, I did allow moments like this. Obviously, that myth wasn't especially, but there were other myths as well that kind of gave that slight feeling. But uh, I also added a couple of bits here and there where it was more me being like yes that's what should happen but obviously mythology doesn't allow me to go full crazy so uh, I just added little yeah. here and there but uh, I don't uh, generally write good characters my characters are all terrible people doing terrible things my Demeter was kind of trying to be even more Worse, I think, than the myths allowed. I think I might have uh, overdone it in some parts, but uh, I just uh, loved the rage. And I wanted to really reiterate that the biggest characteristic of this goddess is that uh, she's really angry as her wrath, not just anger, as like uncontrollable rage. Yes. Ugh. I just, I'm so, I'm so happy with all of this. I really like, I'm, I'm so glad that this retelling exists. I just think it's exactly what was like missing. I'm pumped. Oh, I'm <laughs> Sorry, that's like, well, that's all I have to say. I really how excited hope I am. you like it. <laughs> uh, let me know what you think. <laughs> I will. Oh, no, it's, yeah, it sounds wonderful. Um, And I mean, yeah, I'm just so, I'm, I'm so excited. Do you want to tell my listeners like a bit more about um, you know, where to find it when it's available? Well, I guess when, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be available. Um, But is there more, you know, about the, the physical book you want to share and uh, anywhere you want my listeners to follow you or read more or, or anything? Yes. So 
first of all, thank you for thinking of buying my book. And if you actually do buy it, thank you very much for buying it. I am really, 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 really grateful to every single bit of support I get. I I think it's really important to support indie presses because they actually do really great work. And it's uh, sometimes the only places that will publish stories that are not quite mainstream because, as Liv said, um, the current publishing trends wouldn't really allow, I think, for such a negative portrayal of female <laughs> myth retelling. Um, but uh, if you are interested in buying my book, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on my publisher's website, which is Ghost Orchard Press. You can also find it in uh, quite a few bookstores, such as Waterstones in the UK or Barnes and, Barnes and Nobles in the US, I think it is. Um, but uh, really, I would ask if you can to buy it from the bookshops if you can because that way it hopefully will inspire more bookshops to uh, stock the book. Um, and uh, if anyone uh, is interested in uh, having uh, questions or thoughts or wants a signed copy, I'm more than happy to be contacted on Instagram or through my website or through Twitter or through Blue Sky or Threads. There's so many social medias. I'm pretty much everywhere. <laughs> um, so feel free to get in touch. I am not that scary. I'm just loud. And I just will talk <laughs> on my own. But this is how I was raised. I am very sorry for being such a blubbermouth. I suffer from words diarrhea. But I'm really nice. You are. No, this has been the one of the like i'm so excited for this whole conversation there none of that was too much talking oh my god <laughs> this was me on my good behavior oh no it's wonderful i um i will link to whatever i can in the episode's description so my listeners can find everything uh but yeah i'm just i'm really so thrilled this conversation was so much fun i just all the different levels like between hearing you know about retellings from your perspective as a Greek person is so so important to me um but also Demeter getting a female rage story like I just think is so what what retellings needed that I'm just I'm really thrilled um to have spoken with you and to have that that your book is going to exist in the world so thank you so much for talking to me oh I just want to finish by saying thank you so much for having me it was such a great uh, opportunity to talk about Demeter with someone that really seems to get Demeter the way I do. So I am so thrilled I got this chance. And uh, thank you so much for your support. No, oh, thank you. Oh, I'm so thrilled. Ugh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. You can find links to Winter Harvest and following along with Ioana for more uh, in the episode's description. But if you're able, check out this book. I think it's basically available everywhere. You just have to work a little harder for it because it is an indie publisher. But honestly, that's the best because we need those. So please support this book, this author, the publisher themselves. I wish I had more to say at this end, but like I said, the conversation was recorded at a much different time and 
<laughs> I'm just crumbling right now. So I hope you enjoyed it. I really did have so much fun and listening back it was absolutely wonderful. I'm just reminded so much of, of everything we talked about and how much I learned and now I'm being reminded of, thankfully, editing episodes is the best. Um, but I also just want to say like, it was so interesting. I was editing this conversation. We recorded it months and months ago, but I was editing it, you know, right before it was going to drop. And at the same time, I had been recording two other conversations for this month's worth of episodes. And everything was just fitting together in this really, really interesting way. I cannot wait for March's conversations at the least. have not written any scripts for regular episodes yet. But the conversations are all recorded now and they are good. We are talking about angry women. We are talking about the things men did to make us forget all of the great women of Greek mythology. We are talking about boob cups. I'll leave that one for you. Uh, The many boobed Artemis that maybe they weren't boobed. (laughs) You can just wait and see. When it comes to that, I have some truly incredible episodes coming up, including the one I did admit was the Either I said sexiest or smuttiest, either one is relevant, episodes that I've ever done on the show, so stay tuned. Today's is just capping things off with an angry, righteous, and vengeful Demeter. Something I think we all maybe need a little bit right now. I know I do. So thank you all for listening. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, my assistant producer. Laura Smith is the production assistant and audio engineer. The podcast is part of the iHeart Podcast Network. Listen on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you will get to bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all so much. Stay tuned for more women, more wild stories. Women's sexuality, I think we are covering in this epi- in this month's episodes in a very new way, and I'm really looking forward to it. There is so much more to come. Stay tuned. Happy March, everyone. Thank you all. I am Liv, and I love this shit. <laughs>